Well, have you ever been on the end of a stinging rebuke? I was, uh, as you know, until the start of this year, I've been struggling with uh, chronic fatigue syndrome. It's been quite crippling, debilitating and depressing at times. And one of the strategies I've adopted during that time uh, as a survival strategy was to get uh, to see a Christian uh, counsellor and uh, just, just to, to survive and, and, and to reflect on uh, what the Lord was doing in my life. And one of the things that he encouraged me to do was to write a, a journal of just my thoughts and reflections at the end of uh, each, each day and uh, to bring them to the sessions and, and to read them out and to go through them. Well, after a few months of, of doing this with him, during one of our sessions, I read out one of my journal entries and, and he said to me, uh, uh, well, what do you hear when you read that? And here and I wasn't sure what he was getting out and, and he said well let, let me let, he said words to this way let me tell you um, what, what I can hear I, I can hear uh, the words of a whining entitled and narcissistic eight-year-old boy uh, who's only thinking about himself and is not giving any thought to loving his wife loving his kids or loving his congregation that's not what I was expecting Put that in your pipe and smoke it. It's a rude shock, isn't it? Have you ever had any rude shocks recently? Have you had any things that have kind of taken you aback, knocked you off your feet? It's interesting, Saul, who the kids are learning about, uh, he got a rude shock that knocked him off his feet literally when he came up against the truth of who Jesus was and who he was. What I realised is that I had a reputation for being one thing that I had invested a lot into, but as I listened to this incredibly painful rebuke line by line as we went through it, I discovered that, and my eyes were opened, that the reality about myself was something entirely different. Have you had any rude shocks recently, kind of, slapped you in the face, knocked you to your senses. It's incredibly painful when you realise that there's such a huge gap between your reputation or your regard for yourself and the reality of who you really are. Incredibly rude shock. Well, the letter to Sardis in Revelation chapter 3, Jesus speaks to the church in Sardis and says to them that they have completely lost touch with the reality because they've become so engrossed with their reputation. Look at verse 1 in Revelation chapter 3. It says, You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. That's what you call a stinging rebuke. And it's passages like this that help me to understand why they nailed Jesus to a cross wasn't a very popular word to say and he's still controversial today and we still don't want to hear it. No wonder the passage in verse 6 ends with, now let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches because how many people have ears to hear that kind of stinging rebuke? Not many. So let's pray now that we hear what the Spirit is saying to us through his word. Father, we pray by your Spirit that you would give us ears to hear what it is that you would have to say to us 
Father, by your spirit that you would give us eyes to see what it is that you are doing with us and in our own lives. And Lord, that you would give us hearts to listen and to obey and to follow you into newness of life. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. I hope you'll keep the passage open before you. What I want you to see in this passage is firstly the rebuke that Jesus gives in verses 1 and verse 4. And then the remedy that Jesus Christ provides in verses 2 to 4. The rebuke that Jesus gives and then the remedy that Christ proposes. So let's look at the rebuke that Jesus gives. We've seen it in verse 1, that there's been a massive gap. They have a reputation of being alive. It literally means a name for being alive, and yet you are dead. I almost have this image of a parasite that has no life in and of itself, and so it has to find life elsewhere. And so in this case, it kind of latches on to the life in a reputation, which is just a straw man. It's just a mirage. It's not real. And this parasite latches on to this reputation and tries to feed life from that because it doesn't have any life in reality of life in and of itself. And so this, there's this reputation, and they're feeding off it and leeching onto it and leeching off this reputation at the same time time feeding lies about who they really are because the reality is that they're dead and they're feeding lies at the same time as feeding off the feedback they're getting as a good reputation. But it's not real. It's not the reality. The Pharisees of Jesus' day made an incredible show of um, being good and being righteous. They did their prayers, they did their tithing, they, uh, they gave their money away, they, they did their, all the things right, they went to church, they kept the rules. But listen to what Jesus had to say to them. Jesus says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. The reality is you are like whitewashed tombs which look beautiful on the outside but on the inside are full of dead men's bones and everything unclean. In the same way on the outside you appear to people as righteous but on the inside you're full of hypocrisy and wickedness. It was all reputation and no reality. All style and no substance. But the amazing thing about this passage is that there Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees, but here Jesus is speaking to the church. People who have heard the good news about Jesus and responded to the good news about Jesus. He's saying this to the church. The churches in Sardis was a spiritual graveyard going through the motions, religious motions, without any reality. Now, according to the book of Proverbs, uh, there are three basic responses to this kind of rebuke whenever someone receives the book. There are three kinds of people and three ways to respond. The first is the response of the fool or the mocker. Proverbs 1 verse 7 says, Fools despise wisdom and discipline. They just block their ears and they just keep on going. That's the response of the fool. But then there's the response of the wicked Chapter 9, verse 7 of Proverbs says, the one who rebukes a wicked man will get hurt. Isn't that what happened to Jesus? What did the Pharisees do to Jesus when he rebuked them? They crucified him. That's the response of the wicked. 
The response of the wicked is to cling to my reputation as alive and upright and to crucify all evidence to the contrary, as opposed to doing what should be done, which is to cling to the reality of the Lord Jesus Christ and be willing to crucify my reputation. There's a third kind of person in the book of Proverbs, a third kind of response to this kind of rebuke. And that's the person who, by God's grace, is willing to listen to the rebuke and, as a result, they become wise. That's, that kind of person is called the wise or the righteous. And I find this so ironic because they're being told that they're unrighteous, they're being told that they're unwise, but the only people who are able to hear that are the wise and the righteous. How does that work? I think it's because the righteous and the wise have finally come to the realisation that they don't have any righteousness in and of themselves because all their righteousness is like filthy rags, their resume is like refuse and their reputation is like rubbish before a holy and righteous God who knows all and sees all. And so they've forsaken any hope of having their own righteousness and instead they've received one by grace through the Lord Jesus Christ that's not through their accolades and their accomplishments, It's not an identity that is achieved, but it's an identity that is received through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and his accolades and his accomplishments. And when that person puts on those white robes like we saw in Zechariah 3, it's like a bulletproof vest against rebuke and against attack, not because those rebukes aren't real and not true and aren't the reality, it's because my righteousness hasn't been found in that reputation of being a good person. My righteousness is found wholly externally through the Lord Jesus Christ who gives it to me as a gift and therefore I'm able to hear that rebuke and not be crushed, not be devastated because it's all been covered by the blood of the Lamb. How many of us live such private lives that we don't let anyone get anywhere near to seeing the reality of who we are? And so we've lost touch with the reality and we're living in a fantasy land of our reputations. And yet, there's no reason to provide that covering for the reality of who we are because it's already been covered by the blood of the Lamb and we can open it up fully to the Lord Jesus Christ, but more importantly, our brothers and sisters in Christ because we've got the bulletproof vest of His righteousness on. We live far too private lives in this individualistic society. And there's a great danger that we lose touch with reality and enter into a fantasy land of our reputation. So there's three kinds of responses to this. There's the foolish, the wicked, and the righteous. And the reality is that the church is a mixture of all three kinds of people. And you actually see that in verse 4 where Jesus says, But there are a few people in Sardis who have not defiled their clothes. In other words, there's a few people of the righteous There's a few of the righteous. They're in the minority. Up to this point, the list of churches, it's the majority have been in the right with just a few in the wrong. Jesus says, you've done doing all this right, but these few things I have against you. But here it's the other way around. The majority are in the wrong, and there's just a few people remaining in the church in Sardis who have not defiled their clothes. Now, if you're feeling the Spirit's conviction this morning... If you have received a wake-up call recently, if you have been shocked recently into a reality check, 
then let's look at the remedy Christ proposes for the church in Sardis, who have the reputation of being alive but are dead. Verses 2 to 4. Jesus actually gives five remedies, five commands, and the first is in verse 2. He says, wake up! So the metaphor goes from death in verse 1 to the metaphor of sleep in verse 2, which means there's still hope for you to wake up out of your spiritual slumber. But it really does strike me that when you're literally asleep, in order to wake up, you actually need something or someone else to act upon you in order for you to wake up. And the same is true when you're spiritually asleep. We need the Lord Jesus to act upon us to wake us up. And in John chapter 5, verse 25, Jesus says, An hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. The Lord Jesus Christ alone has the power to wake up those who are dead, those who are asleep. It's through his word that people are woken up. You think of Lazarus, dead in the grave for three days. How does God wake him? How does Jesus wake him up? He calls out to him, Lazarus, wake up. And so the way for us, I think, to stay awake and alert and sharp is to continually listen to the words of the Lord Jesus Christ, to be saturated in the scriptures because he's very good at waking people up. He's very good at waking his disciples up. Can you remember the Garden of Gethsemane? Three times the, he said, stay awake, and the disciples fell asleep. And three times he was able to wake, wake them up. Has the Lord been trying to give you a wake-up call recently? Did you even realize that it was the Lord Jesus saying, wake up, snap out of your spiritual slumber, wake up. The second thing he says after wake up is still in verse 2. He says, strengthen what remains, strengthen what remains and is about to die. If there's any skerrick of spiritual life left in you, if there's any smouldering ember of the Spirit's life still in you, then stop what you're doing and fan that into flame. Whatever the things are that you know are dragging you away from the Lord Jesus Christ, whether it's your work, whether it's your friends, whether it's your worries and concerns, you need to stop focusing on them and the things that draw you towards the Lord Jesus Christ You need to focus on them, your prayers, the scriptures, fellowship, opening your heart and opening this privacy up to someone else to scrutinize so that they can have a reality check on where you are. Focus on those things so that those smoldering embers will be fanned back into flame and so you won't die. Strengthen what remains and is about to die. There's an application for us individually as we contemplate what are the things that bring spiritual life and spiritual health that we need to fan back into flame. But there's there's an application for us corporately as well because 
as we've seen from verse 4, there's a, this is the church inside us, the majority of whom are spiritually dead, but there's a few within them who are spiritually alive. And so to strengthen what remains, I think, in this context, and in, secondly, is for those who are spiritually alive, those who are on fire for Jesus, it is their role to fan others into flame and to help people find those smoldering embers and to fan them into flame, to rebuke them, to correct them, to encourage them, to build them up and especially to pray for them. John Stott said, Says, all the mature Christians have a responsible responsibility to the younger ones in the congregation. That sounds like growing young, if you ask me. Stronger Christians must encourage and strengthen the weak by their example, their teaching, and their friendship. Strengthen what remains. So, those of you who are on fire for Jesus, be encouraged. You've got a calling. You've got a purpose. It's to strengthen what remains and to help the whole church be set on fire with passion and love for the Lord Jesus Christ. What a wonderful calling that is. There's still hope. Wake up, strengthen what remains, and then thirdly, verse 3, remember what you have received and heard. He says to the church, remember what you have received and heard. What was it that they heard? Well, it was some missionary, we don't know who, coming around Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, preaching the gospel, telling them about the Lord Jesus who was crucified, the righteous for the unrighteous, in order to bring them to God and who was raised to newness of life to bring about a new creation that will one day be consummated when he returns. That's what they heard and that's what they established their lives on. But what did they receive? It wasn't just words that they heard, they received the Spirit, the power of the Holy Spirit. Can you remember that day on Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came and there were tons of fire and they went out into the street and and Peter preached this amazing sermon and, and he rebuked them too, this Jesus whom you crucified and they were cut to the heart and they said, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and believe and you will receive the forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit. They received the gift of the Holy Spirit. And he's saying to them, remember what you received. It's interesting, in Acts chapter 3, Peter's preaching again, and he says to the crowd, repent so that your sins may be wiped up, wiped out and that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. What's the presence of the Lord? It's the Holy Spirit. The church is the temple of God. And his spirit is with us. And so what better remedy for a church marked by boredom and religion and going through the motions that's on the verge of spiritual death than to think back to those times of refreshing, those times of revival, those times of renewal when the Holy Spirit was poured out upon them and the times of refreshing from the beautiful, blessed Holy Spirit. Can you remember what that was like for you? Can you remember what that was like at St. Philip's? Have you ever experienced, can you remember that experience of the times of refreshing and the renewal of the Holy Spirit in your life?
You might not remember back 110 years, you probably weren't around then, but our history from Tides of Change of St Philip says there was a time here in a house on Marmion Street when there would be personal testimonies of answered prayer, prayers for healing, for providing, um, and especially for the deepening of the spiritual life, inspired, that's spirit, in the spirit, inspired by the sincerity of these gatherings, friends and acquaintances often travelled from as far as Perth, Subiaco and Claremont to attend to see what the spirit was doing here in a little house on Marmion Street in Cottesloe. Times of refreshing, times of renewal, times of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Can you remember what that was like for you? Wasn't it wonderful? In Psalm 42, verse 4, the psalmist says, I remember this as I pour out my heart, how I walked with the many, leading the festive procession to the house of God with joyful and thankful shouts. Can you remember times of worship that overflowed with the fragrance of God and the sweetness of the Holy Spirit? It was just wonderful and beautiful. In Psalm 26, the psalmist says, When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like people who dreamed. Our mouths were filled with laughter and our tongues with shouts of joy. And then in verse 4, the psalmist says, Do it again, Lord. Restore our fortunes, Lord. Like streams in the Negev. That's the point of remembering. Remember to put something that's fallen apart back together. Take those memories and put them back together today. And then he says, keep it and repent. In other words, don't settle for less. Don't give up on God. Repent of your low expectations. You've seen him do it before. Ask that he does it again. Put it back together. And wake up from your spiritual slumber and your spiritual sleep. Now it all makes sense why we're introduced to Jesus the way we are in verse 1. Have a look. It says, He's the one who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Uh, If you're an Avengers fan or you've watched any of the Avengers movies, uh, there's the um, picture of Thanos that I get with all the infinity stones. And there's all these powerful, beautiful stones. And when he has them all in his hand, he becomes all-powerful. And, uh, and, and this is the picture of the Lord Jesus Christ in verse 1, that he holds the sevenfold spirit in his hand. He's all-powerful, almighty, and he's the one who gives the gift of the Holy Spirit without measure. Now, why is it sevenfold? Uh, the idea is probably that there are, there are um, countless blessings in the gift of the Holy Spirit. And there's actually a countless manifold blessing to be given to the seven churches as the Spirit is poured out upon them. That's why he's introduced that way, because he has the power in his hands to bring that renewal, to bring that revival, and to bring that refreshing through the outpouring of his Holy Spirit. It's the greatest gift the Christian has ever received, could ever want, or could ever need. The gift of his presence, God himself. He's the one who takes our personalities and transforms us into the image of Christ. He's the one who fills our hearts with joy and peace and hope and delight. He's the one who empowers us to live our life and to have works that are meaningful and effective, uh, to love and to serve and to lay down our lives for others. He's everything you could ever want and everything you could ever need and he's the one holding the Spirit, ready to pour it out for us and upon us. And so what other message does a dead or dying church need to hear? What other message does a dead or dying Christian 
need to hear. The Holy Spirit can breathe new life on worship that is boring and dead and he can cause it to sparkle and pop with the presence and the beauty of God. The Holy Spirit is able to take the weakness and the feebleness of our good works that don't seem to make any impact and he is able to fill them with the power of the Holy Spirit so they're effective on mission in the world. The Holy Spirit is able to take a church that's on the brink of death and to transform it into a life-giving force in the community. That's the power and that's the person that the Lord Jesus Christ holds in his right hand. So let him once again fill us with his vital presence so that our work and our worship and our words might sparkle with the presence of the living God and all that he is for us. The Bible says we should pray in the Spirit, preach in the Spirit, worship in the Spirit, live in the Spirit, and walk in the Spirit. And so may we be that Spirit-filled church. Jesus is able to take a stale church and make it refreshed again. It's through Jesus that a sleepy church is able to be awakened. A weak church is able to be strengthened and a dead church to be made alive again. Is there anyone here who would like to see more of that at St. Philip's? It's what he wants to do. And so we should pray. We should ask. Charles Spurgeon said to his congregation, we shall never see much change for the better in our churches until the prayer meeting occupies a higher place in the esteem of Christians. John Stott, who had such a meaningful and powerful ministry, it was um, the 10-year anniversary of his death a few weeks ago and I went to a conference reflecting on his life and ministry and I learned that every Tuesday night, uh, sorry, every second Tuesday night in London, hundreds of people would converge on All Souls Langham Place from around London and to pray for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on his church and look at the impact that he had through them and through him. So if you want this, if the Spirit is stirring in you, if God's been trying to give you a wake-up call and a reality check, be encouraged because he holds the sevenfold spirit and he delights to pour it out upon us. So later on in the service, there's going to be an opportunity for you to receive prayer and anointing with oil that you might be filled. But let's not just pray for us individually. Let, let's, this is a message to the church inside us. Let's pray for the body of Christ here at St. Philip's, that we would be enlivened and enthused and empowered by the presence of the Holy Spirit. We're going to offer you that opportunity during communion. You can take communion. There'll be opportunity two at the front and two at the back to pray that his spirit would be poured out. There's a wonderful image that somebody pointed out, and I'll finish with this, is that we see Jesus holding the sevenfold spirit in one hand and we're told that he holds the seven stars in the other hand which represent the seven churches. And the commentator says, if only Jesus would put his hands together. 
churches would be filled. Let's pray that he fills us. Lord Jesus, thank you that you hold the sevenfold spirit in your hand. Help us not to underestimate your lavishness and goodness towards us and your eager desire to breathe new life upon us, to fill us and to make our lives sparkle with the presence, the majesty and the splendor of the Lord Jesus Christ. For those of us who recognize that we have a reputation of being alive but the reality is that we're dead or dying or sleepy and slumbering, Help us to come. Help us to ask. And please meet us in that place to fill us. O breath of life, come sweeping through us. Revive your church with life and power. O breath of life, come cleanse, renew us, and fit your church to meet this hour. Amen.